92. Psalm 92. This psalm is about praise to the Lord's goodness. Praise to the Lord's goodness. Now, this is a psalm that describes praise. It's describing praise. It praises the person and the work of God, but in an enthusiastic way. And that's, that's how we should praise the Lord, in an enthusiastic way. The psalm also includes several ideas about wisdom. Now, the major theme is the sovereign rule of God, according to verse 8 here in our, in our psalm, which is the key verse of the psalm. And in verse 8, it proclaims that you, Lord, are on high. The covenant name Jehovah, or Lord, when it's all in capitals, it is the covenant name Jehovah. It's used seven times in the psalm. Elion means most high is found here in verse 1, and Elohim in verse 13. And that title relates the psalm to the Sabbath day of worship at the sanctuary. The title relates this psalm to the Sabbath day worship at the sanctuary. Now, during the week, a lamb would be sacrificed every morning and another one in the evening. But on the Sabbath day, those sacrifices were doubled. I wonder if that's where we get our saying twice on Sunday. But anyway... Once during the week and two times, again, the sacrifices would be doubled on the Sabbath day. Because our God reigns supremely and above all others, He always will. We can be the people of God that He wants us to be. The psalm describes the characteristics or the qualities of believers who trust in a sovereign God. Because our God reigns, and again, he, he's, there's none like Him. The title isn't... You know, like a lot of the other titles, it isn't typical because it attaches the word, the Sabbath day. Now, the psalm has four short sections. First, an encouragement for the people to respond to God in praise and worship in verses 1 through 4. Second, a celebration of the wisdom of God in bringing judgment on the wicked in verses 5 through 9. And third, an acknowledgement of the mercy of God who has established the believer's present life in verses 10 through 11. And then fourth, an anticipation of the mercy of God that will continue in the life to come in verses 12 through 15. The theme is be thankful and faithful every day. Again, this psalm was sung on the Sabbath day and it was sung on the second day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's a psalm that just exalts the Lord and it's filled with praise to him. Now, the author is unknown. Now, there are different views and opinions about the Lord's Day. About what we should and shouldn't do on Sunday. There there are people who think that they don't have to go to church to worship God. But that's not biblical. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and you can get to church, you should be in church to worship God and to fellowship with the brethren and to serve Christ and to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Now, if you're bedridden or you have special needs to the degree that you can't physically get to church or you don't have transportation, you can turn your room or wherever you are into a sanctuary. The scripture says in Acts 2.46, they continue daily with one accord in the temple. Man, those new believers, they went to church every day. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says this in the, in the New Living Translation. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And notice, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, 
But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Fellowship with God must never become selfish. It must never become all about me. We must also fellowship with other Christians in the local church. Now, in Hebrews, apparently, when the author wrote this, the Hebrews, some of them were wavering in their belief, and they started dismissing themselves from the church fellowship. Now, the emphasis is here is not on what the believer gets from the gathering with the congregation, but rather on what he can, can, he, what he can contribute to the congregation. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. How can you do that if you're not in the church? How can I bless somebody? How can I comfort someone? How can I help someone and pray for someone when I'm not in the church? And understand that you you and I, we as Christians, we have a special relationship with one another. We serve the same Lord. And the phrase one another is found over 50 times in the scriptures showing us, in the New Testament showing us, that we have a special relationship with one another. Let me give you a few for example. Romans 12.10. Paul said, love one another with genuine affection and take delight in honoring one another. Romans 12.16. Paul said, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14.13. Let's stop condemning one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25. All members care for one another. Galatians 5.13. Serve one another in love. Ephesians 4.2 says, be patient with one another, making allowance for one another's faults. Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And lastly, Paul said in Colossians 3.9, don't lie to one another. How can these things be fulfilled if I'm not in the church? Fellowshipping with my, local, with my brothers and sisters. Faithfulness in church attendance encourages others and it provokes them to love and good works. Sunday is a day for worship, but... Not forbidding other positive, that is, good activities. And we see this based on the activities we see associated with the Lord's Day in the Gospels. So let's begin now in Psalm 92 with verse 1. And the author says, uh, let me get in the right place here, 92 verse 1, it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. No matter what we might think, The right answer is, when it comes to what to do on the Sabbath day, I think we all have to agree that for Christians, Sunday is at least a day to worship God. Now, this is the only psalm specifically designed for the Sabbath day. And it tells us something that's definitely good to do. And that is to thank and to praise the Lord and to do it all through the day and all through the night. Listen to Psalm 113, verses 1 through 3. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Now, how do you look at Sunday? Do you think of it as a day where you, know, you have to go to church? And the duties that you might have on that day, you try to get over with as soon as possible so you can get out of here and, or, and, and spend the rest of the day doing what you enjoy doing? Or do you think it's as wonderful a day, a wonderful day that God gives you and me just so that we can learn about him and serve him and then thank him and praise him for it? Is Sunday a day of praising or playing? 
Is it a dreaded duty or a delight? And it's sad that you know, a lot of churches don't have a Sunday evening service. And I'm not saying that to make us look good. There are a lot of churches that have Sunday evening service, but some don't. And, and, you know, again, some people work during the day and they can't make it to church during the day. I think that, I think the church should be again, it's a it's a service to the people of God. To be here for the people of God. What about those we, we've seen on Sunday nights, people come in off of the street hurting and, and needing somewhere to go. And we want the we want the house of God to be open to people as much as we can. And so, again, uh, it, it's, it's the house of God and God never closes his doors to you and I when I when, when we need him. But for a lot of people, you know, one Sunday morning, one Sunday morning worship is done. They just want the rest of the day, the day for themselves. Now, the Old Testament Sabbath was a day for resting and corporate worship, which means worshiping together as a body. Leviticus 23, 3 says this, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Now, the words holy convocation means an official day for holy assembly. It was intended to be a blessing and not a burden. You see, Sunday should be a time for thanksgiving and praise. It's just one day a week that is set aside specifically for thanksgiving and praise, even though we should be doing it every single day. Thanksgiving should be in our minds and in our hearts and on our lips every single day from the moment we wake up to the last thing at night when we lay our heads down on that pillow. Psalm 113, 3, the psalmist says, From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Hey, we can never thank God enough for all the blessings that we have. The parents he's given us, our spouses, our children, our friends, our leaders, and especially God. And when Thanksgiving becomes a a basic part of your life, you know what? You'll find your attitude towards life, it'll change. You'll become more positive, more courteous, more loving, and more humble. Listen to what Isaiah 58, 13 through 14 says. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. It says, then the Lord will be your delight. In other words, you will find joy in the Lord. That's a pretty heavy verse about worshiping on the day that God gives us. Look at verse 2 now, Psalm 92, verse 2. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Morning and night are probably the best times to spend with the Lord. The first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. The first thing in the morning when you wake up, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to see another day. That's his grace and his mercy. Thanking the Lord that I get to have another day. Lord, for your kindness, for waking me up and the start of a brand new day just to give my life over to him. Lord, because you allowed me to wake up, because you you woke me up, this you must have a purpose for me today. So, Lord, here I am. Use me today. Show me, Lord. What you have for me, Lord, you choose whatever you want to do with me today. Then the last thing at night. 
Lord, thank you for sustaining me throughout the day. Lord, you have been so good and you've been so faithful and you've watched over me and you've sustained me, like I said, through the day. That's his faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. Morning and evening is when the Jews usually prayed. Every morning and every night. And the psalmist showed this same pattern in Psalm 119, 147. He says, I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I might meditate on your word. Verse 3. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. Now these are the instruments that they used in the temple worship. The heart with harmonious sound is talking about worship in the sanctuary. Stringed instruments were used by those in their praises. Now, the reasons to give thanks. To tell others of his loving kindness. Remember in our, in our message this morning, the, 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 man that was, the two men that were delivered from demons? One of them, you know, wanted to walk with Jesus and stay with Jesus and follow him around. But Jesus said, go home. Tell your friends and your family and, and, and proclaim the great things that Jesus has done for you. That's what we're called to do. To proclaim, to tell others about the wonderful things that he's done for us. Verse 4. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. In the New Living Translation, verse 4 says, You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because what you have done. Man, does God thrill you? Does he make you glad? I mean, watching God work, I mean, that is an exciting thing. You know, and as I look at this and I, and I look back on my life and, and, and I see the blessing that, <clears throat> that God has been. And I look back and I see the blessing of God and his hand and, and how he, you know, started this church. And he's taken care of us ever since. We're going on 20 years here. From our first Bible study to the Eastland Theater, to the Women's Club and, and get in the offices on Rue Royale for the children's classrooms and offices and the courtyard. And watching the courtyard over there at Rue Royale being transformed into a beautiful place of worship and fellowship. And watching the men and the women that came together to make that happen. And, 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 and some of you are still here from them those very first days. And it blesses my heart so much to see what God has done, what he's doing. And you know what? He's not finished yet. He's not finished yet. Verses 5 through 9. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered." So after telling us a lot about the value and the reasons for and the ways to worship God in the previous verses, now the psalmist uh, uh, makes a comparison between those who don't know or thank and praise the Lord. He says there's something wrong with them. First, he says, notice in verse 6, they're like a senseless man. In the old King James, it says a brutish man. Brute beasts. That is, a man who doesn't know reality any more than an animal. In the New Living Translation, verse 5 says, Only a simpleton would not know and only a fool would not understand this. 
the Bible tells us that we were, to, we were made to know and to enjoy God. But when people turn their backs on Him, they remove themselves from everything that's spiritual in life and they behave on a physical level, like an animal. And then he says here, they're wicked and act like animals. That's what he means by the senseless man, the brutish man. He won't worship God. And you know what? Here's the sad thing. It's not just a matter of them being blind to spiritual proof, uh, to truth, even though they are. It's a willing blindness on their behalf. They're blind because they choose to be. They don't want to see the truth. They choose not to see. And I'm sure you've heard they're saying that, that there are none so blind as those who will not see. And the reason they don't know God and they won't praise God is that they choose not to know or praise him. In reality, they hate him because he's God. And he's the ruler of their life. And they're not. And then after the psalmist compares himself and those who don't know God and, and worship him and, and having shown what will happen to those that don't know him, the psalmist now focuses on what will happen to these wicked persons and he makes a still further comparison between the destiny of the wicked, which he's just mentioned, and the end of the righteous in verses 10 through 15. So let's look at verses 10 through 15 now. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall, bear fresh and, uh, they shall be fresh and flourishing. And to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The psalmist says in verses 10 through 15 that the wicked are going to be destroyed, will be destroyed like grass. But he says the righteous will grow like a palm tree and a cedar tree in Lebanon. Even those who are older in age. What a blessing to, to, to us who are older in age. But before he makes his comparison, the psalmist wants to share a testimony. He says God has blessed him with anointing and protection from his enemies. And you know what? He wants others to know about it. He says in verse 10, my horn you, God, have exalted. You see, God exalts the horn. It's a symbol of strength. And he anoints with oil. Now, if, you know, if you've noticed the horns on animals, where the creator has placed them is in a place of defense. You don't see horns or antlers sticking out of the side of an animal or on the rump of an animal. They're on their head. They're a means of defense. They're their weapons. To exalt the horn means to raise, to increase in power, honor, and dominion. And the anointing oil speaks of a very blessed thing. We see under the symbol of the Holy we see this under the symbol of the Holy Spirit. The anointing oil. The holy oil spoken of was especially holy. It wasn't to be duplicated. It wasn't to be made. It made those that it was poured on well known. It made them prophets. It made them princes and it made them priests. It anointed them for power and for service. It refreshed and empowered them for lofty service. And this is especially true of the Holy Spirit. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit for power and service, for victory over sin. The oil was a bond of union in Psalm 133, 1 and 2. And so is the Holy Spirit. 
It's pleasing, the Holy Spirit. It's enlightening. It's a sweet fragrance. And in all of these and in other respects, the holy oil speaks of the Holy Spirit of God. And then the psalmist expresses a very joyful confidence. He says, I have been anointed. He doesn't say, I hope to be. He doesn't say, I might be. He doesn't say, maybe I'll be. But he's sure of what he says. And here's why he's so confident. Because you see, the anointing depended upon God. And we, we need to understand that. The anointing is dependent upon God. And he couldn't have spoken like this if it, wasn't, if it was dependent only upon man. Secondly, we're united with Christ, the anointed one. You see, it's his fullness that we all receive. And third, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul said. Fifth, or fourth, the promises of God. They are so full, they are so many, and they're so clear, and they're so strong. And fifth, the experience of God's people in all ages. Everyday strength has been given for everyday needs through the Holy Spirit. This is why we can believe what the psalmist said here. And we also see a valuable help to our spiritual life that's promised to us. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, it takes away fear. Paul said, you know, the Bible said, we haven't got the spirit of fear, but of power and love. The anointing of the Spirit of God takes away fear. For instance, the fear of poverty. Even though Israel had only a day's supply of manna, they didn't worry about what they were going to eat eat, uh, the next day. For 40 years, every day, God supplied them with manna. And you know what? We don't have to fear either because you know what? We know that even though the sun will set, or I should say even if the, uh, when the sun sets, there will be a tomorrow. You know, you know we, we haven't seen the sun lately for a few days, but you know what? It doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. It's just hidden behind the clouds. It comes up every day. So the anointing takes away fear, the fear of poverty. It takes away the fear of temptation. We pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. But even though we pray that prayer, we could still be led into temptation. But we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because we'll be anointed with fresh oil. The anointing takes away great trials if they come. Numbers 11, 18 says it will be well with us. The anointing takes away uh, uh, losses. We say, what shall we do? You know, if we have some great loss in our life, what shall we do? When one support is taken away, guess what? Another one is given. When one door is shut, another one is opened. The anointing also inspires glad hope. A hope, and I love this, of usefulness. Regardless of age. In usefulness, in Christ's service continued. A full attainment in grace of strength that is sufficient for all need. With his own eyes, the psalmist has seen and with his own ears, he's heard the defeat of his enemies. Verse 11 says. And you know what? What's true for the psalmist is true for all the righteous, according to verses 12 through 15. And it's on this encouraging word that he finishes his psalm. And he says three things about those who truly know and worship God. Look at verses 12 through 13. 
He says, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Grace and strength characterize the righteous. Those who are righteous in Christ, they will, they will exhibit grace and strength in their life. Now, palm trees are, are types of grace. Palm trees are types of grace. The palm tree gracefully rises from the desert floor. It grows from the desert floor. And it produces at the top a, a, a beautiful crown of fruits and leaves. Now, a palm tree stands for uprightness in the Scriptures. They grow straight up into the air. They're impressive. They're strong. They're a true picture of those who are truly righteous. Crooked ways are not the ways of God. The palm tree also stands for usefulness. Most of the people of Egypt, Arabia, Persia, exist totally on its fruits from the palm tree. They brag about the palm tree's healing qualities. The camels feed on the dates from the palm trees. And the, 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 the palm trees, they make a variety of things for domestic use from the leaves. Ropes and thread are made from the fibers of the branches of the palm tree. And from the sap, is a, refi- a refined liquor is prepared. And the trunk of the tree is used for fuel. And it's the same in all areas of life. The influence, the example, the spirit, the words and works of the righteous man are full of blessing. And this is totally seen in Christ, the righteous one. The palm tree stands for beauty as well. And in the Psalms, the palm tree is often used as a symbol of beauty. And on the righteous man, John 1.14 says, The beauty of the Lord our God is seen as in our Lord above all. Moral beauty is just as real as physical. The The palm tree stands for power. Because the palm tree can survive all kinds of dangers that threaten its life. You know, it, 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 it's, root, it's a root out of a dry ground. And the choking desert sands around it and the burning heat scorches it and the fierce storms beat on it and it's often wounded. Its roots are crushed with all kinds of waste, the elements, man, the desert animals, yet And they all combine together to injure it. But notice, in spite of all of those things, it still lifts up its beautiful crown of leaves high in the tree and it flourishes. And that's the way it is with the righteous. The palm tree stands for fruitfulness. It's a tree of life to the people around them. And so is the righteous. The palm tree stands for guidance. A palm tree was a sure sign that water was close. When caravans were crossing the burning sands and and, and the people were were looking for water and dying for thirst, if they saw a cluster of palm trees off in the distance, that's where they headed because they knew that at that, that those palm trees, they were there because there was water there. And so should the righteous be and is a sign to the heart worn out by sin. We should be like living waters to those who are dying of sin. See, that, the, the life of the living water in us, it tells people where the living waters are. And Revelation twenty two seventeen says, let him who thirsts come. The palm trees stand for permanence. It continues right on to old age to be all it's said to be. The palm tree is a true symbol of the perseverance of the saints of God. 
Deuteronomy 34, 7, Moses, it says, was 120 years old when he died. And it says, yet his eyesight was clear and he was strong as ever. Caleb in Joshua 14, 10 through 12. Here I, Caleb says, am this day 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore give me this mountain. Caleb at 85 was still asking to climb mountains. I can barely climb stairs. (laughs) Cedar trees are types of a strength, the strength of the righteous man, the righteous woman. Men associate weakness with gentleness. And they think Christ-like men are out of place in this world. So the figure of the cedar tree is joined to the figure of the palm tree. The cedar tree is the strongest of all the trees. Not only do the roots grow deep and wide into the mountains, and they last year after year, but the wood is hard, it's long, and it's lasting. Those who daily worship the Lord and rest their life in fellowship with God will find the secret of continuous freshness and never-ending stability. And then in verses 13 through 14, we see the fruit of old age. Look at 13 and 14. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall still be fresh and flourishing like Moses and Caleb. This is one of the blessed promises of God to his faithful people. Now, what is this fruit that's mentioned here? Well, how about a lot of knowledge about the ways of God? Why is a person given many years? So that they can get this knowledge and the practical wisdom that comes from it. Also, the fruit of old age, holiness of character. A long, disciplined life should have trained his spirit to be holy and established him in the ways of God. Another thing, the fruit of old age, patience. Old age, rest in the Lord. Old age should rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fruit of old age, fourth, heavenly mindedness. You see, they can't help but know their life in this world will soon be over. And that's why they should do all that they can to be ready ready for the better world of heaven. They should talk a lot about heaven because we're getting close to it. Fifth, uh, fruit of old age should be concerned for other people's salvation. And their exhortations and their testimony, the older people, they have a power and, and they shouldn't keep it to themselves. Tell people about your long life with Jesus Christ. How God has sustained you and kept you walking all those years and and the victories that you have had against sin and temptation and afflictions in your life. And God through it will be glorified and people will be eternally blessed. See, this is the fruit that old age should produce. It is supernatural, but it's not foolish. It's supernatural. Old, because old age isn't the natural season for fruit. And it's not in people either. Paul said the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, de- decay of nature sets in. The mental faculties and, the, and strength that becomes weak the older we get. The courage and the fearlessness that we once had when we were young, oh, it turns now into, the ca- into caution. And the fearfulness of old age. 
But even though fruit in old age is supernatural, it can be a reality and you can expect it. Where there is spiritual life, there has to be growth. The influence of a holy life enables the righteous to keep on being righteous and the holy to keep on being holy. And those once strong desires and passions of the body, they decrease with age. But it results in the absence of strong temptation along with the special help from the Holy Spirit according to His sure promise to us. You see, God planned the strength and beauty of youth to be physical and the strength and beauty of age to be spiritual. Nature decays and grace thrives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then let's close with verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. These people show how faithful God is to His promises. How true He is to His Word. How kind He is to those who trust in Him. He is their rock. He is their fountain. And He's where all good comes from. And there's no unrighteousness in Him. God does nothing evil. He doesn't tempt man with evil. God does nothing unwise. He does nothing unkind. God is is both just and merciful. Father, thank you for this wonderful, encouraging psalm, Father. And Lord, may we glean from it this evening, God, the beautiful promises, God. Lord, that even in old age, God, we can flourish and we can bear fruit. Father, we can continue to be of service to God and service to our fellow man, God. Lord, help us to declare all the things that you've done for us, God, in in keeping us, God. In giving us victory over temptations and trials and afflictions, God. Lord, we thank you for, for being so good to us, Lord. And Father, may this be a psalm that we become so familiar with, God. Lord, as it begins, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night, God. You're a wonderful God, a faithful God, a loving God, a powerful God, a forgiving God. Thank you, Lord. We thank you so much. Maybe you're here tonight and you you don't know this wonderful God. For whatever reason, maybe you've not had the opportunity. Maybe you've never heard the good word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That God sent his son to die upon a cross for your sins and my sins. That we might receive forgiveness of sins. That we might be born again to a new hope, to a new life. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight, as we worship, you get up out of your seat.
you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together. A prayer of faith.